Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Telly Davidson to talk about media, about television, about the movies, about America, about crazy transformations in politics. Our first chat was about Citizen Kane. There you have politics and media and the news and technology and the changes in America in the 20th century. And we thought a perfect companion for that that's even more telling about our era is Network, Paddy Chayefsky's 1976 Oscar-winning story. Telly, thanks a lot for bringing this to my attention. It's a great way to continue our series on politics and media. How are you doing? Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. I'm uh, doing well, and great to be back here. I am very glad to do this. We'll have to, for a next podcast, talk about your book, Culture War, which itself is so concerned with media and politics, and the new world of entertainment that seems to have swallowed us whole. But for now, we're back in 1976, we'll be talking about Network, Paddy has been dead a generation, but somehow he also saw at the time that this is a massive transformation happening right before our eyes. There's a big problem agonizing not just American politics, but also transforming how people think about the news, how people think about TV, how people think about entertainment. So I figure we will have a lot to talk about. Thanks a lot for joining me again. Oh, yes. Uh, well, thank you for that. You bring us much-needed expertise in 70s pop culture, but especially 70s television. And so I'm looking forward to a conversation ranging from the highest abstract theories of media to the most down-to-earth gossip. And to start with, let's talk about how Network became a story in Paddy Chayefsky's mind. Well, Paddy Chayefsky began writing notes to himself about this concept shortly after he did the movie The Hospital with uh, George C. Scott and Diana Rigg, which was a satire of the healthcare system and also rather prescient of where we're going with, uh, you know, healthcare is probably going to be the number one controversies of current election season, Medicare for all and that type of thing. And what really crystallized it was two things. One, he was writing it during the height of the Watergate hearings, the first draft of Network, when he was bringing the story and the characters together in his mind of what would happen if a Mandarin of the news, if a Walter Cronkite or a John Chancellor or a David Brinkley had an on-air nervous breakdown, a sort of a midlife crack-up. And shortly after he started work on the first draft of the movie, there was a terrible tragedy, which was also made into a movie many years later in 2016, starring Rebecca Hall in a very good independent movie called Christine. Not the Stephen King movie, but Christine Chubbuck, who was an anchor woman in a small Florida market, about 30 years old. She was what we would call today on the autism or the OCD spectrum in all likelihood. But she was very driven to have a career as a newswoman and to be out in front of the cameras and covering stories and so forth. But a lot was going very wrong in her life. And according to the movie, based on her life, her love life was a mess. She'd fallen in love with someone who didn't reciprocate it. And she, in real life, in August of 1974, committed suicide on the air. And that became the almost tribute moment for the screenplay. It gave him his ending, as it were. What would happen if someone didn't kill themselves but threatened it and it ended up being killed because they had lousy ratings? 
and that gave him the structure of to put this story together. Right, so there's a new desperation to get on TV. Television, not cinema, somehow seems more real than real life, and you gotta be on. But if you are on, then you gotta stay on, and since TV is more important than life, when you get low ratings, you die. It's a cynical, but perhaps better said, a tragic view of things, and Chayefsky is on to something about how we are changing, or how we have been changing. Nowadays, we'd be just as obsessive to be on social media, online. But it is not just the end of a life, it's the end of an era. So what's going on in 70s TV that's changing? What was going on in 70s television as a whole at that point was a shift in TV, really for the first time in the 50s, where Patty Chayefsky made his name as one of the quote-unquote golden age of television's playwrights. He was writing originally for the Broadway stage as a young playwright, and television with things like Studio One and Playhouse 90 and Craft Television Theater had so many venues for young playwrights who hadn't made it into the A-list, hadn't become, you know, Moss Hart or Rogers and Hammerstein yet to try out their wares. People like him, Rod Serling was, of course, another. And he came out of that and had a number of feature film successes like Marty with Ernest Borgnine, which was based on one of his early teleplays, which was done with Rod Steiger. So it came out of that early era of television where you had very high quality play of the week kind of kitchen sink dramas that were very often socially relevant, very much character driven. And then he saw the switch in the very late 50s and 60s to the series television format. In the 50s, most shows were either live anthologies or they were variety or game shows. And then he saw the switch to the sort of film series and the film sitcom eras. And some of them were very, very high quality, things like Perry Mason and The Defenders, some of the Western, Naked City, and so forth. But a lot of them were fluff. A lot of them were very predictable. And by the late 60s, you had a situation where you had Vietnam and you had the civil rights movement on the news, but you also had totally escapist television programs for entertainment, things like, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres and Lawrence Welk and Hollywood Palace and things like that. And by the early 70s, that started to change. And you had socially relevant sitcoms, particularly the ones from the Norman Lear company, All in the Family and Good Times and Maud. And you had the sort of the second wave of the crime drama, Mannix, Cannon, Kojak, Rockford, and so forth, which often had for their day hard-hitting or kind of film noir-like storylines. So he was saying... On the one hand, he approved of the fact that it was reaching out to relevant subject matter once again, but he also thought that what he saw on television was so ugly. He was interviewed on the Dinah Shore show after Network was in the can, and he said, if I turn on television today, and if I was a Martian from outer space, and all I knew of the world was what I saw on TV, I would think that America was made up of nothing but hookers and dealers and murderers and psychos and that type of thing. And he said in a note to himself, 
after Vietnam and Watergate, Americans, I don't think, are going to want wholesome family entertainment like Eyewitness News, you know, being, making a joke there. He said they're going to want, and they apparently do want, television that is angry. And that's how he got the storyline for a man articulating his rage at the bastardization and the prostituting of the news and also at the completely off-the-wall entertainment programs that ended up going on the fictional UBS network as they desperately tried to compete with the big three, with ABC and NBC and CBS. There was no fourth network at the time. The Fox Television Network didn't start until about a decade later. So at the time, it was the big three networks. And the running joke was that UBS in the fictional world of network was so far behind the big three that they were almost a non-entity. In the film, they're an industry joke. So network asked the question, if you've got nothing left to lose, and if your business model is threatened and your back is against the wall, how far will you go to grab the brass ring? Yeah, that's a very good point. There's, in a way, it's only losers or outsiders who will think, what are the possibilities of the medium? What is it that people aren't seeing that we could totally make into a thing? that could make us famous, that could make us grab people by the eyeballs, so to speak. And so television, in a way, only reveals itself or its powers as a medium or what it's doing to America when you abandon the comfort of we're the big three, we're running the show, we're telling people what to watch. When you're desperately asking yourself, what would people watch? I mean, you and I might not like it, but what could work? What would sell? How do you grab attention? And the movie indeed gives you all sorts of answers to this because Paddy Chavsky was such a strange, interesting guy. He was old enough to be briefly drafted and serve in World War II. was in Europe. But at the same time, he was young enough to be interested in television and to have thrived in 50s television. But he was also weird enough that he never fit. He was in Hollywood in 49 where he met his wife, but... He left because writers were treated like dirt in Hollywood. Went to try his luck on Broadway and had some hits in this strange new world that felt like neorealism coming to America as much through early TV as through Broadway and more so than through Hollywood. His first Oscar, the thing that made him a man with a career, Marty, was a kitchen sink drama, as you say. But at the same time, it won the Palme d'Or in Cannes and then the Oscar. This shocking thing that nobody saw coming was there because neorealism was coming to America. Social change. But then, as you say, this sort of socially relevant thing went away. Americans wanted myth-making from television, wanted the continuation of the radio days stories at the same time. Westerns, crime shows, detectives. And then, by the 70s, you see social relevant liberalism all over again, but in a new agonized way, a lot of ugliness, a lot of shocking stuff. And so you see a contradiction there at the core of the American mind. What is it that America is about? Stuff that's relevant to the days, especially when the days are full of violence, craziness, the apocalypse seems to be coming, the country's trying to commit suicide. Or on the other hand, is what's relevant to America ideal? Things that we all believe in, things that we all aspire to, 
what we would want in our hearts of hearts. So to put it differently, it would be something like this. Is it what we're sentimental about or what we're cruel about? What we want to have or how we're going to react when we realize we can't have it. Network is all about this other side, but it's very important to realize the hopes America put into the mid-century transformation of liberalism. The hopes that people like Patty Chayefsky put into their talents as masters of a new medium that would make America better. The hopes that liberalism put into the big three networks telling America what the news is. Because the news was America is on top of the world, America won World War II, America is facing off the world historical evil of the Cold War, and America will come through. And then the 70s happened and all of that collapsed. And people were not taking it well, that nothing was working in politics, in the economy, in society. All of those dreams were coming crashing down. That's where network is set. An era has passed, the era of the reassuring news anchor. And another era was coming. An era that is somehow announced, as you suggested, by a young ambitious woman killing herself on the air. What the hell kind of world is this? So a lot of crazy stuff happening and it's not clear who's in control of what's happening or of what you're showing. And so we get the story of network. Bill Holden plays this old executive and producer who's been in the news business since the days of Ed R. Morrow. He gets to the end of his rope in a way. He's going to get fired because he wants to take a stand against corporate control of the media. His star, so to speak, his oldest friend, Howard Beale, is also fired because his life has already fallen apart and he's a drunkard and he's no longer the sober, serious American father, the adult in the room who's going to tell you what the news is. It's over for him too. These desperate men end up at the same time involved with new people, with young people with crazy ideas who are unvarnished evil. Is the angry, shouty Robert Duvall, who's Mr. Corporate, wants to take over the news to make it profitable, and he's a despicable capitalist. And then, of course, there is Faye Dunaway, who plays a producer who thinks that the difference between TV and the news is non-existent. That you should turn TV into reality TV avant la lettre. And that's where the profit is because that's what will get everybody to pay attention. These are new people, young people. They want to chase success. And at the same time, they're saying the old things aren't working anymore. All the old institutional ideas, limits, standards don't matter anymore. People want the news to be profitable, not to pay for the news. That was ahead of its time in a way. It's what we're living with every day now. And at the same time, people want some of the scandal. People want to see the ugliness of this world because they can't really believe in what they believe in anymore. And that is even truer nowadays. And so to a large extent, we're talking about our own times, about all of television tending to reality television, all of the news or the events tending to scandal. One of the things that's fascinating about this uh, particular movie is that it's both very much of its time, 1975-76. The 60s were definitely over by that point. And that you still saw some remnants of the counterculture, most notably in 
then uh, the Lorene Hobbs, the sort of Angela Davis type uh, character, and in the activities of the Ecumenical Liberation Army, which was clearly a spoof of the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Weathermen, and so forth. But it was clear that you were moving out from under the black cloud of Vietnam and Watergate into what Jimmy Carter later called the Malays era, this after purgatory where America had, in fact, lost its confidence and turned inward. Diana Christensen, the Faye Dunaway character, mentioned that explicitly. She said, the American people have been battered on all sides by Vietnam, Watergate, inflation. They've shot up, they've drank, they've effed themselves limp, and nothing seems to help. And if you were going to talk about the sort of hedonistic kind of boogie night swing town culture of, you know, 1975 to 1980, that would have been particularly from a mature person's point of view, like Patty Chayefsky's or like Max Schumacher, the William Holden's characters, how they would have thought of those years, that would have pretty much put a button on it. But as much of a film of its time as it was, it also very much previsioned where the media was going in terms of the exploitation and also the aestheticization of the news and how the news was presented and what really constituted the news. And a lot of that came from the fact that it built gradually. There was no such thing, as we know, back in 1975 or 1980 as the Internet, unless you were working at the CIA or maybe NASA. So it's almost uncanny how much Chayefsky and Sidney Lumet foresaw what would happen in the Internet age. Because what happened 25 years after Network was made is you had the Internet, which posed a threat particularly to print news media, to newspapers and magazines, that movies and television could never do. Because when was the last time you turned on your television set or went to the movies to read something? But you read things often for free online. So that posed a threat to their business model. We've talked privately about how back in the Reagan 80s and in the early 90s, having a newspaper or a magazine was like having a license to print money. And you had all of these mergers and acquisitions and buyouts going on at the time. And then only they found that 10 years later, when the economy was at its peak otherwise, in 99, 2000, before 9-11, it started to feel the pinch of the Internet. Because what did the Internet do? It made every newspaper a national newspaper, and it made every national newspaper a local newspaper. You know, you could be living in Miami and reading the Honolulu paper, and you could be living in Vegas and getting your news from Boston or Providence, you know, online. By the late 80s, early 90s, television started to feel the pinch, not only from Fox, which was successful as a fourth network, as essentially UBS television network, the Fox broadcast, as opposed to Fox News, made its mark by going straight for the teenage young adult audience, for the same audience that MTV was so successful. And they programmed, not in the hippie sense, but they programmed counterculture programming, just as Diana Christensen said. You know, the early Fox shows were married with children in living color, 21 Jump Street and 90210, which were all about teenagers
years, high school, college, early 20s, African-American and other minorities that weren't being serviced by and large in the mainstream television networks and also by showing, you know, other than Roseanne, probably one of the raunchiest comedies of that time was Married with Children, going where the other networks were going to go. Ultimately, network is a story of what a company does, like we were saying, when they feel they have nothing to lose and their business model is threatened. And I think that one of the things that this network really foresaw, which happened about, I would say, about 10, 15 years after network hit, the not just tabloidification of the news, but making the news division a profit center of the network. Two things really led up to this. One was in the uh, one of the, one of my favorite uh, things as a proud, unashamed aficionado of '70s game shows. There's even a scene where uh, Diana was standing in front of a schedule board, and there's a big sign that says "Name that tune" <laughs> hanging over. Her. I love that. And in two of the scenes, when they're in the executive offices, you see the four television sets that are showing UBS's programs and the three shows that are in competition. And the ones that you see the most clearly over the actor's shoulders in both scenes are the old, the old classic Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall, and another is the old Bob Barker classic era Price is Right. Two of the most, I guess you could say, exciting, you know, iconic game shows of that era. And you had in the early evening time slot, what was called the access slot, starting in the early 70s, probably the not necessarily best known outside of the industry, but one of the most important regulations that was passed ever since the Paramount Consent Degree that divorced movie studios and theater chains was a law in 1970 called Prime Access, which turned the first hour of prime time, 7 to 8 Eastern and Pacific, 6 to 7 Central and Mountain, back to network affiliates. So the networks could not show programming in that time period except for news or like 60 Minutes or a nightly news show or sports events. And that created the market for a lot of the syndicated game shows back of the 70s, you know, Gong Show and Crosswits and Concentration and To Tell the Truth and Hollywood Squares and Match Game and Face the Music and Dating Game and all those wonderful shows. And four or five years after Network was made, those shows had so kind of blooded the marketplace, the syndicators were looking for something new. And they found it with first PM Magazine or Evening Magazine and then Entertainment Tonight in the very late 70s, early 80s. And then because those shows became so successful, our friend Rupert Murdoch came into the picture with The Current Affair. Maury Povich's big break, and which was even more tabloid-esque than PM or Entertainment Tonight was. And then after that, by like 89, the floodgates opened, continuing through today, and you had Inside Edition and Access Hollywood and Extra Extra and All Access and The Insider, Hard Copy and Pop Story and all of these tabloid shows designed to run in the early evening time slot immediately after the legitimate network news shows. And what that did was it put pressure on the network news shows to be much more visual, much more snappy, 
much more glamorous, celebrity-oriented, tabloid-oriented. And the other thing I was getting at, after several writers and actors strikes in the 80s, the networks responded to that and to the rising threat of cable that was fragmenting their monopoly audience. They needed something cheaper, something that would bring revenue into their news divisions to make them profitable. And so you had, before reality TV as we think of it, you know, Survivor, American Idol, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, took off in the very late 90s and early 2000s. Before that, you had about 10 years' worth of news magazines. You know, in addition to 60 Minutes and 2020, which were the sort of Mercedes and Rolls-Royce of news magazines, you had 48 Hours, Dateline running, I think, like three nights a week by 99 or 2000, Primetime Live and 2020 Uptown and 2020 Downtown and 2020 Around the Town and all these things. And those shows were straight tabloid, as Diana said in the networks. They were true crime. They were sexual abuse. You know, sometimes they were very important and did do very newsworthy, socially conscious stuff. But for every episode they did that, another episode was straight up Jerry Springer. It was this sensationalizing and tabloidizing of the news that network foreshadowed. And I think that the tipping point, speaking of my book in the 90s, without question had to be the OJ trial followed by Monica Lewinsky, because those two things happened right when the internet was breaking open, as well as cable, and was threatening, you know, the good thing that the networks and the newspapers had up to that point. OJ and Monica were so sensational, they were like a shot of adrenaline or a shot of crack to these industries that were very much, I won't say in danger of dying, but were very much in danger of losing a lot of their profitability. And it kept them profitable. So the takeaway was, you know, we talk about in the Trump era, probably one of the most overused terms is norms and normalization. But what Monica and OJ did was it normalized tabloid National Enquirer-type news as serious hard news. And it was exactly what you said, that Diana was someone who didn't see any difference between television and movies and real life. And that's what happened with those two scandals. It completely fuzzed the line. The other thing, what we were talking about, was sort of the aestheticization of the news. News shows in Howard Beale's day were really low-tech, low-production value affairs. I mean, you have the anchorman behind his desk and the tickety-tackety of the you know typewriters in the background, and then you would cut to a live remote and back to them. And they weren't particularly cinematic or visual or exciting to watch, nor were they designed to be. And then when Howard has his own almost variety show, the Howard Deal Hour, you know, when they change the format from a straight news show to him being the mad prophet of the airwaves, you see this set with game show-like turntables and civil soothsayer and box populi and Matahari and the visual effects. And you see him in back with, you know, live studio audience and the stained glass in back of him and that type of thing. That very much prefigured how television changed in terms of sensationalizing that happened 
magazines and with the entertainment news shows later, but also the idea of programming the news to a specific demographic. When you turn on the Hannity show, the last time I saw it, you see, you know, Hannity spelled out on like a road sign, like a trucker would see. Judge Janine, you turn on her show and you see the billowing American flag in the background. And that tells you this is a very God and country, middle to lower middle class, working class, unpretentious kind of red state America show. Then you turn over to MSNBC and what do you see? Facts, figures, percentages, Steve Kornacki with his whiteboard, the, you know, horse race, unsentimental, scientific. This is something for professional people. You see the aestheticization of the news, and network very much prevision that as well. Yeah, I think that's right. You see all of a sudden how much of your identity and your beliefs, the kind of person you think you should be, your demographics, your advertising characteristics from the corporate point of view, all of these things end up being represented in the screen, in what you see on set and how you see even something like the news. I think you're right. And then the audience, people just go on Amazon and buy Telly's book. Telly Davidson culture war. You'll see what the 90s did to make us who we are or when things become perfectly crystallized because as you say, all of a sudden politics and the media and the scandal and the reality TV show and the soap opera, melodrama, all of these things come together because hey, it's the OJ trial. It's the Monica Lewinsky scandal and of course the impeachment trial. All of a sudden, every prurient thing about America is married to new technological things, whether it's Cable or Matt Drudge, in the case of breaking the Monica Lewinsky scandal, the gutter, things like National Enquirer, and the Heights, the presidency and the Oval Office, all of a sudden are on the same page because they're in the same scene, because all of it is bleeding together. And at that point, everybody treats it as though it's both shocking and normal. But in network, you get to see very clearly how it is going to happen. What is it that's driving this? So far as Paddy Chayefsky can tell you, it's not just prescient, but it has an unusual clarity because it looks at the origins of it all before everybody thinks it's just the way things are. Before the media is the politics, so far as Donald Trump is concerned, or indeed everybody who hates him but makes money off of him, like CNN or MSNBC. And on the other hand, everybody who wants to replace him, the Democrat primaries are as much a TV show as anything else. It's just that in our times, TV is all on social media, but it has all the same characteristics we see in network. The only thing we don't have from network is a Howard Beale, strangely enough. I mean, it is in a way presented, but not the essentials of the character because that's just too dramatic. We see this guy, played by Peter Finch, who died after the movie and before he got his Oscar, his last performance and the most melodramatic performance of a movie of melodramatic performances, five of which were nominated for the Oscars and three of which won. There you get to see what kind of movie this is. Everything that's in front of the camera was rewarded. Paddy Jeffsky got the Oscar for the screenplay because there are all these shocking dialogue lines, all these attractive things people say, give that man an Oscar. And three of the five uh, actor nominees also won their Oscars, including these performances that take five minutes of screen time, in the case of Beatrice Strait. 
because it's that kind of movie. Everything behind the camera, director, producer, editing, cinematography, nominated but didn't win. Because it's not an attractive movie. It's not a showy movie in that sense, cinematically. The Academy wasn't interested in this because, frankly, it's too much like television. Everything before the camera is interesting. Everything behind the camera is... Who even knows who the producers of television are? Who even knows the names of the producers of politics? The people who put on the show but don't star in it. It's strange, but uh, you can see it even in the way the very liberal academy rewarded the movie. Somehow the showiness is what counts, and the way the show is made doesn't count. And this is why up to now we haven't even mentioned the director is Sidney Lumet. This was once a household name. This was once as crusading a liberal, as forthright and moralistic as Paddy Chevsky himself. And yet his direction doesn't really stand out in our conversation because we're so concerned with the TV aspect of things and not with the cinema aspect of things. Indeed, we will have to neglect this to some extent with apologies to uh, everyone who rightly admires Sidney Lumet. Now, back to the acting and the strangeness of Network as a story. This guy, Howard Beale, just shows up on TV because he's a loser. He's now considered lowlife, a drunkard, has no future. He's getting fired and he says, you know, it's all bullshit. He's supposed to be apologizing for threatening to commit suicide live, but he can't because what the hell's the point? There's nothing left to lose, as you said. That level of human misery and at the same time shamelessness is at the core of Padichevsky's concern. It's what's revealed in the 70s, America's suicide attempt. It's agony, crime, and malaise. There's nothing good to say. This concern with the combination of outrage and outrageousness, the combination of shamelessness and deep self-loathing is all fixed in this one character, but in various ways it affects everybody else. Howard Bill has become not just the prophet of the airwaves, the man telling America we're doomed. Not just that it's all bullshit, but it's all falling apart. It's bullshit we can't keep up. That is to say, we once believed in things, and we now know those things not to be true. And so this is not merely a matter of how TV is presented or what is on the news. It's also a matter of the character, of the characters, of what kinds of people they are. They are also people who have to deal with this dawning nihilism. As you said, this is reflected in Paddy Chayefsky's own thinking, that on the one hand, you want to satirize how corrupt TV is becoming, how it's trying to grab you by the eyeballs to make advertising money. But on the other hand, it's anger at the ugliness of everything you see on television, which bespeaks a far more reactionary and moralistic mindset at the same time. And this is somehow a contradiction always present in the American mind. We're disgusted now with our public affairs, but we're also very angry at how bad things really are. We don't just want a prettified, idealized version of things. We don't want somebody else to keep selling us bullshit. We don't maybe know what we want. And the network shows that primarily through the characters. Howard Beale is supposed to be dying off, being forgotten, but at the same time, he's just eager to sell his soul in a new entertainment version of the job he once took seriously as a news anchor. He's now bearing his soul. He's supposed to be Mr. Authenticity. But at the moment this happens, he becomes the most overproduced he's ever been. 
the more he tries to tell people what's on his mind, the more he realizes that somebody else has to make up his mind for him, his TV producers, his overlords. And he ends up a wreck. Somehow trying to bring out into public all our private drama ends up corrupting it all. I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because the one thing that we know that we do want, though, is to get validation from people we consider, I won't even say our social betters, but people who are rich and famous and glamorous. You know, a conservative doesn't listen to Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly or Fox News really to learn all that much. They listen to these people because they see rich, successful authority figures validating the beliefs they already have. And the same thing is true on the left. People don't necessarily listen to Pacifica Radio or MSNBC or NPR. Yes, they listen to the news shows and the interview shows to learn something on some level, but it's also to be validated in the belief they already have. It's preaching to the choir. The reason Howard Deal's show initially took off wasn't because he was telling the audience something they didn't know, but quite the opposite. Yes, you're right to be mad about how powerless you are in the face of elites and in the face of a changing world situation and a crime rate that you can't control. And he was a famous authority figure who was validating them in the anger and in the issues that they already have. As to Paddy Chayefsky himself, that's another thing I'm glad that we get to talk about, is the network was a very well-produced movie, but it was not what you would call a really cinematic movie. It was not an auteurist movie, and clearly the creative force of the movie was Paddy Chayefsky, the screenwriter, not Sidney Lumet, the director. The movie could have been directed by, you know, Sidney Pollack or by John Frankenheimer or by any one of a number of directors who were working at the time, more or less in the same age group, and it would have turned out probably much the same. But it would have been a completely other movie if someone other than Patty Chayefsky had written it. And Patty had formed by that point a partnership with the motion picture and television producer Howard Gottfried based on his Oscar-winning clout in the movie industry and on Broadway so that he was one of the few brand-name screenwriters who could get a meeting at United Artists and MGM on the strength of his own work and get a production deal, which meant that he and Howard Gottfried could hire and fire the rest of the production staff up to and including the director. This was, remember, right when the old ways of the studio system had already fallen apart. The days of Louis B. Mayer and Jack Warner and Harry Cohn were long gone, and the authority figure in Hollywood at that point was the auteurist directors, Scorsese, Spielberg, Hal Ashby, Francis Ford Coppola. Patty saw this coming, and he had enough prestige and enough track record with his Oscars and his Tony nominations to get a production deal, and then he and Howard would decide who would carry out his vision. I remember a contemporary of Patty's, actually about you know nine or ten years older, who had come from book writing, novel writing during World War II, and then entered film as a director and screenwriter, Richard Brooks. And the year after Network, Richard Brooks did Looking for Mr. Goodbye. And when he brought this A-list 
new Hollywood talent. Diane Keaton, Richard Gere, Tootsie Wells, Tom Berenger together. He had a little confab, and he said something to the effect of, I know all of you are very talented young artists, and you're probably dying to improvise and throw your two cents in and to offer your advice and to be a part of the team, to offer your own special insights in how we make this movie. And I just want you to know that it's my effing film. You do what I say. I'm the boss. And if you have a problem with it, the door is that way. And, <laughs> and that was Patty Chayefsky's attitude on network. Susan Harris, the great sitcom producer who did Soap and Golden Girls and wrote the famous or infamous abortion episode of Maud for Norman Lear, when she was casting Golden Girls, Elaine Stritz told the story in her Broadway show. Elaine auditioned for the Dorothy role, the B. Arthur role, for Susan Harris, and she looked at the script and said, I hope you don't mind if I might improvise a few things with this character in the lines. And Harris looked up like Barbara Walters or Judge Judy on a bad day and said, only the punctuation, honey. So, and if you're a writer, you can't help but admire when a Susan Harris or a Patty Chayefsky does have enough power to put their foot down that hard, even if it's a little bit inappropriate, because writers often were the most disposable, and writers who weren't producers, even in television and certainly in film, were the bottom of the top level. But what that did do to network's detriment is that it was, as you say, carried on the strength of the dialogue and on the strength of the actors' performances. And it did have a very good production design for what it was, but it didn't have a really a memorable score other than the themes, the news show that they played over the credits. It didn't have really avant-garde visuals or montages. It wasn't a self-consciously cinematic movie. It was definitely a playwright or a screenwriter's movie, not a director's movie. As far as Howard Beale, I think that Howard Beale's grandchildren today would be people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and Samantha Bee and John Oliver who make no pretense of being quote-unquote journalists. They're comedians, but they are working in a format patterned on a news show as much as on a comedy show. And they are shout-blaming, and they are ranting about all of the injustices of Trump, just like before they were ranting about the injustices of the Tea Party and Palin and of Bush and Cheney and so forth. And it was said during the Bush years and the early Obama years that more millennials and Generation Xers got their news from Jon Stewart and The Daily Show than from the CBS, ABC, and NBC 630 news shows or from Fox News or CNN, whose average viewer was in his or her 60s at that point. So I think that the next and final step that Network Division was the late-night comedy show that was sort of news by other means and that did not have even the remotest pretense of objectivity. Yeah, I think you're perfectly right, and it's yet another way in which network shows you what the end game of television is going to be. 
everything is going to be a joke and at the same time kind of outraged. Everything is going to be scandal. All TV turns into reality TV. All celebrity turns into scandal mongering. The difference, of course, what I was trying to get at is that Howard Beale is an agonized man who has to face his mortality and the end of the world he believed in. Whereas in the case of Stephen Colbert or Jon Stewart before him or any of the minor imitators, these are successful millionaires, celebrated figures of worship. They seem to have absolutely no capacity for introspection, no awareness that they're part of a corrupting, self-corrupting, and at the same time decaying system of dealing with what we believe in and what we look at in America. They are glamorized. They're not drunkards at the end of their tether. They're not threatening suicide on TV. They're celebrating and celebrated in their strange vision of progress. I mean, strange because what they're talking about is continuously everything is going to hell. It's a strange vision of progress. But there it is. They do not react to the Trump era with the madness of Howard Beale. It's all champagne for them somehow. Rage was at least true. He was truly going through a midlife crisis and a nervous breakdown. The Stephen Colbert's are performatively performing a nervous breakdown night after night by performing their outrage. I'm sure they have strong feelings about our political situation, but in a way, it's sort of a satire of the satire. It's a spoof of the spoof, in a sense. Well, yeah, because you know it's going to be on next season too, that it's good for the ratings, that they're not railing against the system, they are the system. They're ensconced in positions of influence and they're making millions out of it and it's going to keep going so far as they think or as they hope. They have hopped on from TV to the internet and they're doing all right. This is not the view we get in network because there at the beginning of this full television version of America, you can see that all of this will be corrupting souls and provoking a catastrophe. Not that it will be a good business model and young people will be eating it up. It's a very different version and that's because Paddy Chayefsky needs to show the agonized version of humanity, to show that underneath the compulsive happiness and materialism of America, there is restlessness, there is anger at mortality, there is not just outrage at injustice, but a personal fear of death, of it all having been a waste, a fear that all of it, from God to country, is bullshit. And this is, therefore, an examination of the agonized heart of liberalism. The old people in the movie, primarily Bill Holden and Peter Finch, the producer and his TV anchor, come from the days of Edar Morrow. They are the mid-century liberals who believed in enlightenment, who thought that if you tell people the serious news and you give them that global perspective they can believe in because there's foreign news and there are clocks behind them with different times for the different areas of the world of importance, all of that will enlighten America, will broaden people's horizons, will tell them the truth in a way that they can consume it and deal with it. It won't be an awful truth because the news is good news. It's America's successes. Well, what happens when the 70s come about? What happens when all of the American mid-century dreams are going to hell? 
the economy isn't working anymore, politics isn't working anymore, society isn't working anymore. America is not winning its wars and it's facing war at home. Thousands of bombings in the early 70s, domestic terrorism, insanities. The whole world feels like it's going to pieces. New York, we're told, is on the edge of bankruptcy, which it was throughout the 70s. And of course, it's the panic of skyrocketing violent crimes and drug epidemics. All the stuff that in certain ways got even worse in the 80s. This vision of America... Is it fit to be on the news? What happens when the liberals who want to tell you the news, to tell you the truth that you can use, they have to tell you the awful truth instead? Well, you, get, you have to get bullshit. You have to somehow hide it. But this provokes a serious crisis within liberalism because you can now tell the truth, but you can't give people anything good. And this disjunction between what's beautiful and what's true, between what's good for America and what's good for the network, provokes a crisis. We see that the corporation is done with a version of liberalism that isn't profitable. The news isn't making money, it costs money, so screw the news. Nobody's going to stick up for it because you have to make money. This is a business. And if Americans aren't paying for the ugly truth, they will pay for a beautiful lie. And that is the ugly truth then. One of the most ironically conservative aspects of the movie network was its jaundiced view of the counterculture, particularly the most extreme members of it, the weathermen and the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Black Panthers. And one of the ideas that it gets across is that a lot of the violence, the weathermen and the Black Panthers and the SLA did, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, bombing buildings and shooting police officers unprovoked, was done, and Network very explicitly makes this point, even though the radicals who perpetrated this would never use this language, they would never cheapen it to that level, but was done as, let's face it, publicity stuff. If you knock over a bank, kidnap a famous heiress, shoot a police officer in the middle of the street, blow up a research laboratory, you are guaranteed, whether the anchor man or the news person is conservative or liberal, you are guaranteed on page of the New York Times and the LA Times and the Washington Post, if not Time Magazine, you are guaranteed that you're going to be on Walter Cronkite and the Chancellor Brinkley Report. And a lot of the reasons that radical counterculture, as opposed to the peace and love, sunshine, hippie counterculture, did these extreme things to, as they say, bring the war or the civil rights struggle home, was to ensure that their really marginal, even in the counterculture points of view, became front-page news that could not escape them to get the quote-unquote establishment attention. And what Network did was they took it at face value and said, if this is how these people are acting, what would happen if a newspaper or a television news division of a network actually went along with this because it increased their ratings or their circulation too? So, I mean, it was about as cynical a viewpoint of the counterculture as you could have gotten from a rather liberal person, Patty Chayefsky. I think that also takes us into the other major character, Diana Christensen, played by Faye Dunaway, based on three women who each could have laid claim to the title Most Powerful Woman in Hollywood. One, of course, would have been the super agent 
two Avengers, Fade Dunaway's own agent, I believe at the time, and represented Barbara Streisand and Anne Margaret, you know, most of the top of the line actresses, Cher and so forth, of that era, and was also very close with Warren Beatty. She coined the phrase, love you, but I gotta lose you. Bette Midler played her on Broadway in a one-woman show. You can imagine how uh, kind and maternal and nurturing and caring Miss Menzers was, which is to say, not. <laughs> <laughs> then there was Julia Phillips also. If anyone could have made Sue Menzers look like Mother Teresa, <laughs> it would have been Julia Phillips. And the third was a woman named Lynn Bolin the first female vice president in 1975 at NBC, and she was appointed the assistant head of NBC Daytime in 1972. She had been a young documentary filmmaker and had worked in news divisions and PBS, I think, and NET at the time. She really put her stamp on NBC's daytime lineup because she was one of the first to emphasize demographics, and she wanted to have the youngest, hippest, because this was when women, remember, were leaving the home to go into the workforce. And so she knew that most of the women at home were going to be middle-aged or older women who were traditional or retired people who had worked and who were now home. And she thought, okay, these people are going to be watching TV one way or another. I want the moving target. I want young, upscale, hip. I want college students. And she canceled the original Jeopardy with Art Fleming, not the Alex Trebek Jeopardy that's been on since 1984 that we all know. She canceled Concentration, which went on for five more years with Jack Nars in syndication in early evening time slot, like we were talking about, was more popular there than it had ever been on NBC Daytime. But she canceled a bunch of game shows and talk shows and soap operas. She canceled Dinah Shore shows, her daytime show that she did after her primetime show and her 40s and early 50s movie career had ended. She did a half-hour daytime show called Dinah's Place, and it was still doing very well. But she thought, you know, Dinah is like 50 years old, either 55, even though she was looking good, and she was more World War II, Korean War generation, and I want something that will appeal to the baby. She, she got rid of Dinah's show. Dinah went on six more years in syndication, just like Concentration did. And she put Wheel of Fortune on the air back when it was Chuck Woolery and Susan Stafford before Vanna White, Pat Sajak came aboard. That was her biggest hit. She also had a very strong aesthetic sense. She gave Alex Trebek his first break. She gave Chuck Woolery his first break. She wanted young, hip-looking game and talk show hosts, not middle-aged, not William Holden's age. She called them her studs and insisted that they dress in leisure suits and open collars and disco suits and flashing sets and overproduced electric company Sonny and Cher type chroma key visual effects. And she also expanded another world in Days of Our Lives to an hour to allow for more elaborate plotting and so forth on her soap operas. She or her assistant, Madeline David, put Gong Show on the air as well, I believe. So she really revolutionized NBC daytime while she was there. Diana Christensen, her alter ego, sort of makes an interesting point. 
They were silent generation more than they were baby boomer generation, but they were sort of like Joan Didion. They were young enough to be able to pass as baby boomers and to sort of forget what the baby boomers were about. So Diana Christensen was clearly not a flag-burning hippie living on brown rice and living in a commune. But she could understand that there were millions of people like that who weren't watching television that could be if they saw programming that appealed to them. And so she decided to exploit the aesthetics of the counterculture to hook a new young audience. And that was what a lot of people thought Lynn Boland was doing with her career at NBC. And a lot of that was, let's face it, being through a filter of sexism. A lot of people just didn't appreciate that there was this quote-unquote uppity woman bossing them around and thought the worst of her. I've heard very good things about Miss Bowman as a person after she retired and married the director, Paul Wentos, and moved to uh, Malibu. People said that she, you know, was the type of lady who would light up a room. But she was known as being tough as nails when she was running the show at NBC. And so uh, Diana was very much of a satire on that type. Yes, I think you're right, Tully. The 70s are the moment the boomers take over entertainment, but as you astutely noted, this massive change was not orchestrated by baby boomers, but just like much of baby boomer culture was orchestrated by people slightly older who were looking for a way to get in, to get up in the hierarchy, to make their break, and who saw that this is America, you always escape into the future, find a new audience, find a new thing, see what it is that people love. That's another thing that makes the 70s, the network era, and the change in television and entertainment that network dramatizes, it makes it so interesting because there was this massive shift, this massive cancellation of old things, this bringing in of all sorts of new things to attract a new audience, the new obsession with the demo and the ratings, and the combination of capitalism, scientific measurement, advertising, all of these things. It just so happens that you have a book on the 70s TV shows that tracks fairly well with this transformation of entertainment. How about you tell us about it? Well, I have a book that I did about uh, 12 years ago. I can't believe it was that long. called TV's Grooviest Variety Shows, which certainly talked about some of the transition from the early television shows. Obviously, we covered Lawrence Welk and Ed Sullivan because they ran into the 70s. The Welk ran up until about 82, I think. But looking at shows like Carol Burnett and Laughlin and Dean Martin and Flip Wilson and Sonny and Cher and going into Saturday Night Live and SCTV from the shows that sort of carried the banner from the early iconic variety show days of Milton Berle and Sid Caesar, your show of shows and things like that. And certainly Culture War was a book more about the 90s, but it certainly covered some of the roots of these things. TV's Grooviest Variety Shows and Culture War are available on Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com. If our conversation has inspired you to uh, take a look at my work, just uh, look my name up, Telly Davidson, on uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon, and you'll see those beauties just waiting to be taken away to your home. But one book that I did about 10 years ago that did not get published, and I wish it did, if I can brag on myself, it was endorsed by people who had big-name authors who begged them (laughs) to endorse their books. One was a writer for The Hollywood Reporter. One was the late, great Digby Deal, the best-selling biographer and film critic. 
David Frum said some nice things about it, members of the LA Film Critics Association and so forth. So if I can be immodest, it really did deserve to be published, and it did attract the attention of two New York literary agents. But despite all of that, it didn't get published because it was a satire of the media. And I don't say it was as good as Network, which is a pretty high bar to clear, but that's what I sort of had in mind. And it was about a writer who faked a book in order to make it similar to Jay Uden's Fry and to the pen name J.T. Leroy and so forth, the scandals that happened about 15 years ago. One thing that I think was the most affecting about a movie like Network to me is when I had that book out and it still failed, I saw some of the rejection letters and it failed not because it was a bad book, but because a lot of the industry thought it was too hot to handle. That how dare I or anyone else make fun of the publishing industry, which was then at the height of the Great Recession when Borders and Blockbuster Video was closing down, and make fun of its worst successes and its worst scandals. One thing about Network, it was revived as a Broadway play about a year ago with Brian Cranston and did very well. But I'm not so sure that if it hadn't been what we call a legacy play or movie, if it hadn't already been an iconic hit, I'm not so sure it would have been made if it was brand new. And when we're talking about Norman Lear, they did a couple of his choice episodes, one of All in the Family or two of them, and the pilots for Good Times and Jefferson with A-level current cast by Ola Davis, Jesse Eisenberg, starring Woody Harrelson and so forth. The private joke with both the revival of Network and with these one-night-only remakes of the Norman Lear sitcoms is as shocking as the Norman Lear sitcoms and as a movie like Network was 45 years ago, it would be more shocking today. So politically incorrect. I don't want to get into any more trouble than I already have, I guess, but there are no safe spaces in satire. There's no room for privilege theory in satire. Satire hits everyone on some level, and you can't have too many sacred cows, is what I'm trying to say, in a good satire. Satire doesn't work if you're only one-sided and if you're trying to use the humor to only attack one side and to make another side inviolate. You can write great satire from a liberal point of view, which Patty Chayefsky and Norman Lear did, and Terry Southern, who wrote Dr. Strangelove, did. Or you can write great satire from a conservative point of view, like Tom Wool and George Orwell did. Patty Chayefsky said this himself, if networks have a point other than the tendency of movies and television and the media to prostitute things, he said, I think I would like to say something against the destructiveness of absolute belief. That's an exact quote from him. The only total commitment any of us can truly have is to each other as human beings. And that is the root of true satiric comedy or the heart of it. Today, comedy is used almost as a weapon or a means to an end, whether it's Rush Limbaugh or Trump making fun of how stupid their adversaries are on Twitter or on radio, or whether it's some social justice warrior on Twitter or some late-night talk show host delivering some slay queen, yeah, you go, you know, one-liner that quote-unquote destroys their opponents. 
today, people have an idea that humor's primary use is to show how superior and how smug and self-righteous and perfect I am and how stupid you must be if you disagree with me. That's not the humor that Norman Lear or Patty Chayefsky, as liberal as they were, had. Norman Lear once said, as many political points as I made in my shows, it had to be funny first. And Chayefsky said, as whatever other political points I was trying to make with Network, it had to be a human comedy about what made us humans, our flaws, our foibles, our heroism, our strength first, and then the rest after. And today, as my late grandmother would say, it's top over tea kettle. Today, the humanistic side is almost completely lost, and it's just about slaying someone, destroying someone, putting them away, belittling someone who thinks different than you. I wish there was more, but both from left and from right, room for true satirical comedy. But as they say, satire closes on Saturday. And uh, I learned that <laughs> lesson, and it kind of makes me very sad that 10 years later we've come no further. Yeah, I agree, Talib. We're not in the days of network anymore, because back then there were large audiences. In the movie, they're not just greedily obsessing about ratings, they're also pointing out it's 40, 50, 60 million people watching the same show. You're going to need some kind of consensus. You're going to need what we might call centrism. You can't just be one-sided or extremist. But that is not possible anymore. Nobody has a big audience, and therefore nobody really needs to respond to a diverse audience. It's a, a strange situation where the majority is, seriously speaking, unrepresented, since it's only small niches that make up audiences. Nothing now has audiences like there once were in television. Not even the Super Bowl or the Oscars have the audience they had 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. It's over. All of that thing is gone, but what has been lost with it is a sort of responsibility to the American audience. As you said, whether it's liberals like Patty Chevsky or Norman Lear or anybody else, it had to be funny, it had to be recognizably human. The people get to vote, indeed with their wallets, and they will only put up with certain things. Because at some level, popularity means consent. It means that, yeah, I get it. I, I recognize what this is about. It's funny. It's true. We don't have that anymore. The only truths we can tell are, as you say, ugly truths, accusatory, denunciatory, always goring the other guy's ox. And it turns out that there are only small audiences for that, if reliable. Hysterical histrionics pay. That's the industry model because the industry is collapsing. But in the case of network, the industry was just beginning to collapse. There was still a sharp division between two generations of liberals, the old people who thought that telling the news is mostly going to be telling the good news and it's mostly going to have a good effect on the society, so everything will get better. The news is pretty good, people are doing pretty well, they like hearing the good news, it's going to get better. It makes economic sense, it makes moral sense. It's always going to be one big happy ascent into the end of history, I guess, is where it all ends. It's progress. But then you see these young liberals who are saying, well, screw that. All the money is actually in scandal. All the money is in showing the ugly truth. It's the crazy stuff. That's where the new generation is, because this is a crazy world out there, and people don't necessarily think there's a future. They don't have a lot of hope, and if really the money will be in despair. 
since we're going through that as a media model, since we're going through that as a social model nowadays, it's very much worthwhile to see something like network again, not least because, as you said, young writers like you aren't getting the chance to do a new network or anything like that. It's not going to happen. There is no longer a cinema that will allow for this to happen. In a way, the single most important thing about the network is that it's a movie. You have to go to the cinema to be able to tell the ugly truth about TV and society. Well, that's gone. There's no place where you can go to tell that truth. It's not just that the Liberal Academy rewarded Padichevsky's network. It's that it was a big hit. People loved it because they saw, yeah, we are crazy. But if you can look at it and understand it and see what is human that's driving us crazy, then you can uh, know that we're, it's not all that terrible and it's not all a nightmare. You can reconcile yourself to some extent to the misery and hope that it can get better. At least now you know, and you know it's not just you. In that way, the tagline of network, I am as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, is not just a cri de coeur, it's also a rallying cry for the nation. It's Howard Bill telling people, just go to your window and start screaming, and everybody does. And people hear each other scream and they realize you're not just alone, scared of the world around you, hidden behind your walls, stuck in front of your screen, worrying, wondering what the hell is happening. Everybody else is feeling this too. That is a feeling of togetherness, of community, even in misery. At least we all know that the ugly truth is there, we share it. At least we're not alone. There might be some kind of good thing that comes out of that. And that's what we're seeing now, is we're seeing people on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube screaming how mad they are at Trump and how mad they are at white supremacy and how mad they are at the liberals and the, the homosexuals and the abortionists and the, the terrorists and it, that people are constantly round the clock venting and almost competing to see who can be more righteously angry and more pissed off and more animated and more rage savvy than the other. Network was, as you alluded to, sort of a 35 or 40 years later sequel to Citizen Kane. And the 45 year later sequel to Network, without question in my mind, would be Joker. And that was a movie that was set only five or six years, set in 1981 and 82, after Network was made, very much in the same sort of fictional universe. I'm sure that UBS was still on the air in the world that Joker lived in, you know, <laughs> and that Diana Christensen was programming it. But the problem is, Joker would have done anything short of sell his soul to get a meeting with Diana Christensen. And he finally did with this sort of Johnny Carson-type talk show host played by Robert De Niro, which was an inside joke because... De Niro sort of played the ur-joker in King of Comedy, of a marginally talented comedian who dreamed of being legitimized by making the big time in television, because back in 1981-82, we were still before the internet. If you wanted to make it as a comedian, you made it on television or in the movies, and of course in you know Vegas, through the nightclubs and so forth. If Joker were alive today, if he was a 35-year-old comedian who wanted and lusted after fame today, he wouldn't need to go out on a murder spree. He would go on YouTube and eat Tide Pods, and he would, you know, do all sorts of Fear Factor-esque, you know, have a pile of manure dumped on him, or, you know, re 
dances or something, he would do outrageous things or he would take his clothes off and masturbate or something on the internet to get fame because now there are no rules and there are no gatekeepers. But back then, as much as things were going to hell in a handbasket, there were still rules and there were still gatekeepers and there was still that monopoly of five or six movie studios three or four networks, a handful of book publishers, all of which were independently controlled. And the other great thing about network is the speech with Ned Beatty, the College of Corporations speech. Talk about previsioning the era of globalization, because what do we have now? We have a College of International Corporations. We buy our television sets and our cell phones and our washers and dryers and dishwashers from LG and Samsung. We drive Hyundais and Hondas and Toyotas and Lexuses. You know, everything is internationally made globalized with corporations that have offices in our country, in their home countries and so forth. But the only loyalty is to the dollar, is to the profit. So I think that's the other way that it both look towards today's society, and I think that that would be the continuum. The network asks the question, what do you do if you are a desperate, if you are a fame whore, and you want the validation of being famous, and if you feel that your life and your life's work does not have meaning unless you are famous, how far would you be willing to go in order to get it? And Joker answered that question. <laughs> so I think without question, Joker was one of the most relevant films, whether you loved it or hated it, of the past year. So I think that we're seeing the wheel keep on turning. Yeah, that's a very good point. It dominated the nominations, just like Network did in his day, and it only won for acting and small things. It didn't sweep, just like Network failed as well. In both cases, indeed, it's a matter of showing that people have reached the level of agony. I think you're right that the network provisions both globalization and social media. What happens when the people screaming out their windows, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, and who at the same time maybe want attention, they feel lonely? What happens if they can actually scream back at the television because all the television is on the internet and all the celebrities aren't immune anymore? It's not your press agent dealing with your press clippings and your letters anymore. It's people telling you that they hate your guts. The one place I disagree with you, it's not a matter of liberals hating conservatives and conservatives hating liberals anymore. It's a matter of vast millions of people telling elites that they hate them, that they hate the most famous or most powerful conservative or liberal guy. Celebrities are almost universally hated, and that, I believe, is descriptive of our times and the stuff that's only beginning in the case of network. The celebrities were still safe, and the people on top of the world were still safe back then, whereas nowadays it is, as you see in Joker and as you see on, online. The celebrities and the rich and the famous aren't safe anymore. They're hated. The parties are being taken over by incredibly undisciplined and uninstitutionalized creatures, but many industries are. The entertainment and the news industries themselves are, to some extent, under assault from crazy internet phenomena. At the same time, of course, like in the 70s, we do see a new clampdown of institutionally enforced morality. When Howard Beale on TV says, I'm going to shoot myself, this is all bullshit, take him off the air, fire that guy, pretend it never happened, we'll, we'll forget about it. Well, this is also what's happening with the Disneyfication of American entertainment. 
Disney is there for everybody who wants to tune out all the ugliness, all the bad stuff, all the scary stuff, all the violence, if not the violence, the shocking, indecent things. The world of Star Wars and Marvel is a world where there's no sex. If you want that, you go to Game of Thrones where you can have rape and incest all the time, but it turns out it's a minority option. The vast complex of Disney, the House of Mouse, is friendly. Even all the superheroes in super tight latex outfits never as much as kiss. It's all gotta be sexless. It's mannequins, not real people. That is the rule. Online, you can't have nudity on YouTube. And you know what? If there's porn on Tumblr, it all has to go away. And then the entire corporation startup, uh, you know, is kind of failing. There's no money left. You know, there's a dark internet, whether it's the craziness of Reddit or worse than that, the chance. Or on the other hand, porn internet, that's concealed. The beautiful internet is, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that, which mostly censors all the ugliness and the indecency, but it lets hatred express itself instead. And, you know, there's a bright, beautiful Instagram version of the internet, just like there is the sewers of hatred of Twitter. You can have your bizarro or your normie aggressively happy hashtag blessed fixes any day of the week and every hour of the day. These two versions are still there. There's still a corporate attempt to moralize and to remove all indecency, just like there is a dark, technologically innovative version of the internet out there. And it's hard to say what it's doing or what the effects will be because we don't look at it. We're, we're shutting it out, just like people on TV wanted to shut out the ugliness in the 70s up until, you know, it burst through. So these opposite tendencies are still at play in our media because they are at play in our lives because we are still stuck with what network told us, which is that America is something that happens on TV. You and me and everybody else, we're just people and we have to go on with daily lives and we have no idea what the hell is happening in the world. It's too big. There are, too, there are 300 million people. How the hell are we going to know what happens? You know, from the internet, you know, from TV. And that's the problem because you're at the remove from the world. You see the world in your living room or nowadays on your screen. But whenever you look on your screen, you don't see the world around you. Maybe that's because the world around you is bored and you want to see something interesting on the screen. Or maybe it's because the world around you is falling apart with bad infrastructure and bad jobs or insecurity. And what you see on the screen is helpfully distracting or at least blissfully distracting. It's this sort of crazy juxtaposition of the real thing out there is actually on a small screen, but at the same time, maybe it's all just a fantasy distracting you from the real thing out there, which would be in front of your eyes if you put down the screen. This is the crazy world we live in that we see on network. Is it that this guy is telling the ugly truth that we've all been long forgetting about and telling us to close your TV and just go look at the world around you? Or is it that he's an overproduced, vaguely televangelist, revolutionary against the elite corporations? Who knows? It's a shocking combination of both. And there's the threat indeed that globalization will swallow things whole. If Howard Beale says, you know, you can't let the Arabs take over our corporations, nowadays it would be with the Chinese. Then it turns out that the corporations don't want you to say that. It turns out that the corporations that do social justice woke capitalism in America are in business with China where, you know, human rights abuses are not complaining about transgender rights. They're harvesting organs from political prisoners and imprisoning millions of Muslims. But of course, the media corporations that complain about, you know, the Trump Muslim ban, as it was called, don't complain about the horrors done to Muslims in China because the corporations have to do business there. And so that aspect of network is still a, a real concern. 
the fact that corporations are taking over everything in our entertainment, and so that the only hope would be some kind of populism that hates all the elites, because they're always lying to you in order to get you to give them that advertising money. I think that sort of brings us to, such as it is, before the final climax of Network, where Howard Beale was shot and killed because the corporation wanted to keep him on its propaganda, but he was starting to depress people and lose the ratings, so it was losing the losses at the network level. But the only happy ending that the movie had, such as it was, was when William Holden's character came to his senses and went back to his wife. And he had that devastating, lacerating monologue with Diana, where he said, you're turning into one of Howard's humanoids. You're giving up on what makes you human. And my wife and I may not have a perfect relationship with passion and sunshine and wine and roses anymore, but at least we see each other. We recognize our humanity. And there's a lot of truth to the humanoidization of the world these days, I think. Uh, when Howard Beale asked the question, is dehumanization such a bad word? He wasn't kidding. It, that's more relevant today than it was back then. Yeah, online behavior is strangely robotic. When your responses are press this button or that button, your choices for human interaction are like, share, comment, retweet, heart. These are all very mechanic. What are you? You're that one number in the number of retweets or that one number in the number of views on YouTube. Maybe you're a robot. You know, if the press model becomes clickbait and hate clicks, then it's encouraging you to behave like a robot, to become a humanoid, as Howard Beale famously says. It's depressive. You think like the tube, you dress like the tube, you eat like the tube, you try to act like the tube. You replace tube with internet or cell phone, and you have today's society. We shop online, we have sex online, we hook up online, we make friends online, we vent online, conduct business correspondence online. Everything is done on the cell phone and on the computer now. We live our lives through them even far more than people did through the movies and through television in 1976, because in 76, movies and television were still mediums of information and entertainment. But people actually got up and got out of their house and went to work and shopped and so forth and met people and hooked up with people in discos and singles bars. And now we literally live our lives through our cell phones and through our computers. So it's kind of a battle to remain human and not humanoid <laughs> when you're placed in that position. No other time in history has human beings been confronted with that, with living their lives literally through alternate technology. Yeah. We live in interesting times, as they say. Very good point, and it shows us both something that we already see in network and the way it has shifted with the technology. Network is a movie all about the fear that TV is swallowing up America, that everything from normal behavior turning into sitcoms or soap operas to the counterculture and political terrorism becoming fiction, fantasy, everybody in America and everything in America is being threatened with being swallowed up in fantasies, and the only question is what kind of fantasies they'll be, and they turn out to be shifting into each other. It's the characters of terrorism that turn from the news into fantasy and the TV shows that turn back to the TV news 
and supposed reality, which itself has become a fictional talk show, in order to kill the prophet who is also a news anchor or once was. It's what people call surrealism. You can't tell the difference between what's real and what's fake on TV because it's all in the element of fantasy, of imagination. And to some extent, we are now worried. What happens when the computers swallow us whole? It's not television. It's going to be different. It's going to be digital. What's going to happen then? There are obviously very big differences because computers have an inhuman memory that is, in a way, perfect. Everything is recorded all the time. It'll come back to haunt us. Nobody is prepared for what happens when all your past is dragged up. Is it going to be done by the government or by hacks on the net or by massive corporations looking through your data? Who knows? All of them. All of the above. That's the answer. That was not there with TV. TV came and went. Digital is forever. The internet doesn't forget. It's easily searched through. Access is shockingly unlimited, even as ratings don't really matter in the way they did, because advertising itself has changed, because indeed, now we buy on the internet. It's just everything we do. So now that the digital age is dawning, now that we have a new kind of technology swallowing us whole and a new kind of TV entertainment complex, it's very useful to look at what happened the last time around. How did TV do this to us? How it turned into the crazy stuff of the 90s and the crazy stuff of the social media? How did it go to reality TV, to scandal celebrity, to outrage all the time? How did it turn into all this stuff that you call very astutely the tabloidization of everything? And network shows us all that, and it's for that reason not just worth watching again as a Sidney Lumet movie, as a Paddy Chevsky story, as all these Oscar performances. It's also something worth looking at and paying attention to because there's much to learn from. It's much that we will recognize, and also there's much there that will shock us, that we try to bring out as the transformation of TV entertainment in America. So, thanks a lot for joining me, Telly. I think that your insights are wonderful and everybody should go buy your books. Go go on Amazon and get Culture War. Now that we've gone through this long, long journey, I think you deserve the last word since you're the expert on all this. Well, I thank, thank you for that. that and take one to know one, I guess. guess but but it's, it's always a pleasure talking, talking to you uh, on the air and off the air. Do uh, check, check out, out my book, Culture, Culture War, War, and TV's previous uh, variety shows, uh, especially Culture War, which is fairly recent on Amazon or Barnes Noble. And I can't, can't wait to uh, do this again on some other fascinating filmic subjects with you. Thanks a lot, Telly. All the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me.